Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Robert Amos, and I asked him to introduce himself and to share a bit about who he is and the work that he does. I grew up in beautiful suburban Toronto. I left that behind and arrived on the West Coast in 1974. And discovering Victoria in 1975, I went to work at the Art Gallery of Greater Victoria, where for the next five years, I was the assistant to the director. During that time, one day I came upon a painting by E.J. Hughes, an artist otherwise unknown to me. It's a painting of Lady Smith Harbour and belongs to the University of Victoria. I was struck. Hughes was painting uh, realist paintings in a time of almost entirely abstract tendencies in Canadian art. And as an artist myself, I am a realist as well. And here was a painter who looked at the extraordinarily beautiful landscape of southern Vancouver Island and uh, painted it in a, a direct and realist way that wasn't photographic, but it was instantly recognizable. So over the years, I continued studying the works of Hughes wherever I could see them and uh, continued my own career as a painter. To uh, help keep the wolf from the door, I began writing art reviews uh, and was hired by the Victoria Times colonist to contribute a weekly review on art for the next uh, 32 years, from 1986 until recently. And in that time, I often wrote about Hughes when I had the opportunity. In 1993, Hughes assistant, Mrs. Pat Salmon, uh, called me one day. Apparently Hughes had noticed my comments on his paintings and wanted to invite my wife and I out for lunch. As he was known to be reclusive, I was quite surprised that he had reached out to us. But in fact, when we got together at the Snug in the Oak Bay Beach Hotel, I found him to be quite gregarious and uh, full of conversation. We spent a very pleasant afternoon there and uh, that happened again a few more times in coming years. I never wanted to uh, impose upon Hugh's privacy, so I left him pretty much to himself. One day in 2010, she called me out of the blue and said, if you would consider the taking the responsibility, I would like you to become Hughes' biographer. Well, I knew that this was the greatest gift that uh, I'll ever be given in my life. Over the next few years, I made many trips to visit her and came back with boxes and boxes of photographs and letters and newspaper clippings and her notes and computer files and everything she told me and uh, 
I set to work uh, creating the archive on Hughes from that material and uh, sorting out all the written documents uh, before I dared to uh, actually go ahead and write a book about him. But the first one came out in 2018, E.J. Hughes Paints Vancouver Island. And uh, since then, uh, I've uh, produced a number of books working with uh, the archive that I've created and adding and developing to this archive all the way along. My own career as a painter goes on, uh, but as a writer, I've pretty well given myself uh, completely to telling the story of E.J. Hughes. Robert Amos's book, The E.J. Hughes Book of Boats, is a finalist for the Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. Robert starts our conversation by talking a little bit about the book and then reading from it. E.J. Hughes, born in 1913 in North Vancouver, was a landscape painter, and by choice, his paintings almost always included water. Naturally, this led him to add boats into the scene. In 1966, Hughes wrote to his sister Zoe about one of his recent works. Oh, so glad you liked the painting, he wrote. It is strange. Everyone seems to know it's my painting, even though there's nothing in type to say so. Perhaps I'm becoming noted for my boats. Though no one would ever have claimed that Hughes had the sea in his blood, he never learned to swim, and he was seasick on the Atlantic crossings which he made during wartime, he certainly spent his share of time on the water. In fact, in the years before the war, he spent two summers gill netting for salmon at Rivers Inlet on BC's central coast. Later, he owned a couple of boats while living at Shawnigan Lake. And indeed, for a time, his small one-cylinder motorboat was his only means of transportation to and from Shawnigan Village. In retrospect, there is no doubt that Hughes liked painting boats, and he took a great deal of pleasure from the elegant curves of their design. Rather than painting on plein air, that is to say, outdoors. His approach was to make detailed drawings in pencil on location, often while sitting in the front seat of his car. And then back in his studio, sometimes years later, he took up these careful drawings and used them as basis for his full-sized paintings. Paintings by Hughes have long been treasured in Canada's major art museums. In November 2018, his oil painting Fishboats Rivers Inlet, which he painted in 1946, was sold for more than $2 million. The money, of course, didn't come to him. The painting had been sold years before. But he noted that at the time when abstract painting was the rule, his form of realism was in fact appreciated. Hughes had a special regard for the princess ships of the Canadian Pacific Steamship Corporation. He sketched the busy harbor scene of 
which he titled Steamer at the Old Wharf in Nanaimo in 1948, while he was sitting on a small rocky hill where the Nanaimo Museum is now located. In 1955, he took up the sketch and made it an oil painting. And when he sent the painting to his dealer, Max Stern in Montreal, he wrote, Steamer at the Old Wharf Nanaimo has taken over six weeks, as will all the medium and large canvases I do from now on. For this fine work, Stern paid Hughes $180, a higher price than Hughes had received for any painting previously. It wasn't much money, but Hughes seemed satisfied Stern wrote, should you need more money for your paintings, do let me know, and we'll simply have to raise your prices. In reply, Hughes made his position clear. If the time someday comes when my pictures are selling very well, I will hope you can raise the payments. But at present, $180 for a medium canvas which takes six weeks to do, is satisfactory to me. At the time of Hughes' death in the year 2007, Adrian Chamberlain wrote this in the Victoria Times Colonist. A few years ago, I bought a small reproduction of Hughes' 1952 painting, Taylor Bay, Gabriola Island. It shows a piece of the shoreline a few houses away from the home in which I was raised. A small fishing boat in the bay is unnaturally white, as though illuminated by a Klieg light. For me, the soul of the painting is my familiar home shoreline. Twisted arbutuses and hollowed sandstone formations are painted in a curious, naive style reminiscent of Henri Rousseau. Hughes' color choices, burnt oranges, yellows, browns, rusts, are supernaturally vivid. An oddly abstract handling of details, funny little things left in, others left out, produces a spectacularly heightened effect. The impression is not reality. Instead, Taylor Bay is recalled as a powerful dream. From the day they met in 1951 until Stern's death in 1986, Max Stern bought every painting Hughes created and his Dominion Gallery in Montreal continued to buy them all until that gallery closed in the year 2000. Hundreds of Hughes canvases passed through his hands, but Taylor Bay, Gabriola Island, painted in 1952, was one of only two paintings that Max Stern kept for himself. One thing I was really taken with um, with this book in looking at all the different paintings and the and the sketches was the way that he was able to capture 
the changing landscape and the changes that were happening in the province through boats. Like it was quite an interesting because he had the steamships, but then there was also the ferries and the freighters. And it was I was quite taken with um, with how something so simple like a painting of a boat could also just show the passage of time on the coast here. And I wondered if you could comment on that from your perspective. I think you're quite right in saying that uh, when you think of other artists, the group of seven, for instance, made a specialty of painting the unpeopled landscape. And uh, that doesn't help understand the passage of time very well. Uh, other artists tend to uh, edit out the details of what's right in front of them. For instance, telephone poles or parked cars. Uh, they, they think, oh, this is not artistic. I shouldn't put this in the picture. But Hughes didn't behave that way. Right from the start, it seemed he was dedicated to drawing and painting what was directly in front of him. Of course, he edited and arranged things, but uh, he didn't do it for sociological purposes. And he lived a long life. And if you just concentrate on the scene directly in front of you over the course of a long lifetime, things inevitably change. I hadn't thought of that when I set out to put together the E.J. Hughes book of boats. But as I sorted out the pictures into categories, for instance, there are pictures of fishing boats and pictures of boats involved in logging and pictures of transportation situations, that is the princess uh, pocket cruise ships and the BC ferries. And then there's the uh, pleasure craft. Each of these sections is actually a description of the, uh, I think you'd have to call it the industrial base of life here on the coast. And in the times we've lived through, this industrial base has changed dramatically. Uh, for instance, those uh, log booms and uh, little tugboats uh, and harbors filled with uh, floating timber, you just don't see that anymore. And uh, the one-man fish boats, the guy with the cowich and sweater bailing out the bilge, that's not how fishing is done anymore. And certainly the change from the princess ships, which uh, he felt were uh, classically and wonderfully beautiful, uh, to the BC ferries, which uh, had uh, absolutely uh, nothing to, for aesthetics involved with them. Uh, it's all there. And yet the, the basic feature of Hughes' work as an artist is he always gave everything his full loving attention whether it be uh, as beautiful as an arbutus tree or as completely banal as the pilings at the end of the wharf. He always uh, focused on it with what I kind of think of as the sort of one-pointed consciousness of a Zen master. It, it was interesting too, like you, in the part you, were, you read from, you spoke to his his challenges with being on water, that he was he was seasick and these types of things. But it seems like he was quite taken with with the life of boats and being on the water. Where do you think that came from in him? Uh, I think a lot of people who would paint the boats on the coast uh, 
would come at it from a maritime background uh, that they'd know all the proper terminology and have spent endless summers as a deckhand and so on and so forth. But that was never his experience. Uh, he, he was a, a passenger on one of the princess ships early in his career, but uh, he didn't enjoy the experience. It wasn't suitable for painting because he was on the ship not looking at it. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm sure every one of us who lives here on the island is continually drawn to the shoreline. You know, the view of the ocean at the end of the street or the beach or the water access or Fisherman's Wharf, whatever it is, we want to go down and stand on the shoreline. That's where he was. And uh, he made his... Uh, uh, tours uh, every three or four years uh, out to make uh, drawings to use as uh, sources for his paintings. And uh, he was always on the lookout up and down the shorelines for good places where he could, essentially he could drive to and even park his car and sit in the front seat and have a good view and draw in those comfortable circumstances. So that's the kind of, uh, relationship he had with the uh, the waterfront rather than uh, being a old salt. Yeah. It seemed like there were spots that really drew him in, like you wrote about Crofton in the book and how this that community and that shoreline in particular held a special place for him. What was it about these spots like Crofton and Shawnigan Lake? And there was a draw to specific places, it seemed. Yeah. Well, Shawnigan Lake was the place where he he and his wife Fern uh, moved to and lived from 1951 until 1972. Uh, and that's a very special place. That's uh, lakes and uh, summer cottages. And uh, from that location and from his subsequent home in Duncan, he was just minutes away from the shoreline. His uh, scope of activity, as is abundantly seen in my book, E.J. Hughes Paints Vancouver Island. His scope of activity begins with the Malahat Drive uh, down uh, close to Victoria, and then uh, moves up through Cowichan Bay, which he had a particular attraction uh, for. That's very easy to get to from Duncan. And just north of Cowichan Bay is the town of Crofton, again, which is just moments, uh, moments away. So. Uh, naturally, he came to these places because they were close at hand. But when he got there, uh, he found uh, particular attractions for both of them. It came as a real surprise to me to find that Hughes had painted more pictures of Crofton than any other place. Now, when I thought of that, I realized I'd never been to Crofton. I mean, as you're driving up the island highway, there's not much luring you to turn right and go to Crofton. Uh, in the first place, it's a scene of a huge pulp mill, which often uh, left the air in his time uh, quite uh, redolent of the smells of pulp mills, which I don't find very attractive. Also, uh, I asked Pat Salmon about this. Why, why, why Crofton? And she said to me that the sand on the shoreline around Crofton is almost black. In fact, according to her, it was 
maybe a kind of industrial waste. It was not, not the, the, the natural shoreline. And she said to me, it's, it's a little bit harsh underfoot. So it's not a place where you want to take your children for them to frolic on the shoreline. It's just not, it doesn't feel good that way. But that meant that there weren't very many people there, especially children, who would interrupt him and come and ask him questions and get in his way. He would be pretty well left alone at Crofton. From a painterly point of view, that dark sand makes a beautiful foil for all the things he loved to paint on the shoreline, the uh, driftwood, for instance, uh, and pebbles and shells. They stand out very beautifully against that. He also had a, had a passion for painting the uh, industrial realities. He didn't mind painting a pulp mill or freighters or uh, ferry boats coming and going. It was all interesting to him. You mentioned um, that largely his story hasn't been written until you uh, started putting it on paper. Why do you think people hadn't taken an interest in E.J. Hughes much in the past? Well, they were interested in it, but they didn't really have uh, access to it. Uh, the first thing that struck me, which is, I think, what, what I wrote about years ago in the newspaper uh, and what Hughes noted, was that in 1951, Max Stern came from Montreal one day and discovered Hughes at Shawnigan Lake. And that afternoon, he wrote out a contract by which he bought all the paintings Hughes had and contracted to buy all the paintings he would produce in the future. And so all of Hughes' output went to Montreal and Stern sold it to the highest possible collections, museums, collectors in the country, the National Gallery, the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Department of Foreign Affairs. These were among the first customers. So all of his work went away so that the people who were buying it didn't have the local connection and they, they weren't involved in the story. And when they did want to become involved in learning the story, they found a lot of resistance because Hughes worked with such dedication to his task that he found interruptions very upsetting. He was not very well socially acclimatized. And even uh, the ringing of the telephone would, would set him off for a whole afternoon's work. He'd have, have trouble bringing his concentration down to the extreme level it needed to be. And if someone came to the door, it was a write-off of a whole day. With Pat Salmon's help, he avoided uh, giving out this information. Um, in uh, 2003, Ian Tom wrote what is really the first book on Hughes with, in conjunction with the retrospective at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And I learned that uh, Hughes uh, communicated to Mr. Tom that he was welcome to write the book and put on the exhibition, but that he was too busy to be interviewed. And if he needed any information, uh, Tom was to uh, send it in writing to Pat Salmon and she would answer these questions. That's a rather remote way to write a book. Uh, so that kept things away. Another aspect of it was that 
Pat Salmon was gathering the information with the expectation of writing a book. And so was a bit leery about giving it all away to anyone else. But unfortunately, she, she had never did write a book. I mean, writing a book is different than thinking about writing a book. So the, the, the information about Hughes was very closely held. I'd also like to say that uh, the estate of Mr. Hughes, which is held by two of his nieces and a nephew, is uh, something, I mean, they are very protective of their uncle Eddie. And they didn't, weren't eager to uh, uh, pour out lots of information and get lots of press for him. That wasn't the, what they were up to. I'm very pleased to say though, that uh, working with the material Mrs. Salmon provided, I was able to uh, make contact with the estate and have developed a very strong working relationship with them. So we're going ahead on this together now. But I think you can see how the, the material was not, not well known. One other aspect of it is that, you know, Hughes' life was not the stuff of novels. You're, you're not finding a lot of conflict there. Uh, there aren't dramatic turns of events in his life. Um, uh, he, he tried to stay home as much as possible and worked diligently with a, a, a extraordinary attention to what he was doing. So uh, another reason perhaps why uh, his life was never revealed. I would like to say though, that it's been my dream that after I have have uh, completed uh, my series of books on the different parts of Hugh's career. For instance, I've done his paintings of Vancouver Island. Then came E.J. Hughes paints British Columbia, which takes care of up the coast, Vancouver and across the interior. And I'm just now uh, finishing up E.J. E. Hughes, Canadian war artist, his uh, untold story of his uh, six years working with the Canadian military. After that, though, I really hope to write his biography because he was an unusual character. And Mrs. Salmon wrote down copious notes with great insight about this unusual man. And I look forward to telling those stories someday in the future. Yeah, I'm, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Pat Salmon. She sounds like a fascinating character too, and someone who must have, I mean, I, I can't imagine she would have thought starting a job as, as his assistant would have led to where it, it ended up for her. You're quite right. Uh, Pat Salmon is worthy of a biography herself. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get to that, but uh, um, uh, Pat grew up in Victoria, uh, married and had seven children all of whom are alive, and uh, most of whom live in Shawnigan Lake. And her husband lived till just about the end of her life as well. So it wasn't as if she didn't have anything else to do with her life. But uh, Pat was a, a writer, a poet, and interested in art. And uh, she took a job as a slide librarian at the University of Victoria in the 1970s. 
And eventually she became a, a lecturer for first year courses in art history at UVic. Uh, so she had a kind of a, a kind of a art, art historical background. And one day discussing it with one of her colleagues, uh, they realized that uh, publish or perish was an important motto in university and they should write something. And Pat said, oh, I know an artist at Shawnigan Lake. I could, we could write a story about him. So Pat approached Mr. Hughes, who she was acquainted with as a neighbor and said that she'd like to write a story about him. And I believe that Hughes in his naive and innocent way thought, great, you be my biographer. And he gave to her all of the material he had collected about his own biography. And uh, she set to work on it. And of course, the material grew and grew and grew. And uh, soon she was uh, photographing his paintings for him as they were created and uh, looking out for uh, interesting places that he might enjoy painting and uh, sorting through his uh, sketches with him to decide what to paint next. And then uh, taking over as his corresponding secretary, which of course he was absolutely no good at anyway. And uh, her responsibilities grew and grew. And uh, Pat was, Pat died just, uh, what, uh, 2019, just a few years ago. Um, uh, Pat was a dedicated Roman Catholic woman. And I believe she had a very strong sense of stewardship. And she recognized with Hughes that here was a person who needed help. And she was perfectly suited to offer that help. And she took it, took it on as an act of stewardship uh, with uh, great seriousness and dedication. And as time went on and Hughes got older and older, her work for him became more and more personal. He, he was, uh, his wife had died in 1974. And so he lived on as an aging bachelor with absolutely no sense of how to take care of himself. I mean, he, I don't think he could cook at all. He used to eat, eat a meal just about every day at the doghouse restaurant in Duncan, which is one of the most favorite anecdotes about him at all. But uh, Pat, was, Pat was there for him uh, right till the very end. And uh, really, one extraordinary thing, which for people who've read my books with uh, sufficient attention, you'll realize that Pat wrote a diary. Every day when she came home from whatever it was, she sat down and wrote right off the top of her head what had been going on. Now, as I say, with seven children and a very active husband, there's acres and acres of information. But I was able to retrieve these diaries from her floppy disks and hard drives and take out all of the Hughes-related information. And it becomes clear that Pat was a very good judge of character. I can say this because she keeps talking about all sorts of people I've met. And <laughs> you think, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right, isn't it? A very good judge of character, also a, a good writer, but a very succinct writer. Because she had so much to get through every day, she just nailed it. 
she just, in, in just a few words, she'd say exactly what it was. She had a very good ear for dialogue and vernacular, and she'd give you just what the person said, and you can hear their voice coming through it. So there are many thousands and thousands of words of her up-close experiences of all kinds of things with Hughes brought uh, through her, her own words. So uh, I'm in eternally grateful to her for doing this. And all of the work I'm doing is built on the foundation of what Pat created. Yeah. What's it like for you to look back at, you know, that first lunch that you and your wife, Sarah, went on to and looking at where that lunch kind of led you to? What, what's it like to look back on that? <laughs> well, I must say, when I came back from it, I sat down and wrote a transcription of as much as I could remember of everything that was said during the course of that. Um, uh, it was very important to me. Of course, I was uh, uh, quite taken by uh, Mr. Hughes and uh, felt a, a sense of the historical importance of that first meeting with him. I had no idea where it would lead me, but as a natural born archivist, I just kind of collect things as I go along and make bigger and bigger piles of them. Uh, but I've, I've had the feeling, uh, looking back on things, that uh, Hughes understood that I was the right person to deal with the legacy he was leaving behind. That as an artist myself of a realist sort, he knew that I would understand what it was he was doing. I mean, believe me, I've read an awful lot of art writing by people who are not artists and they sure can get it wrong. I mean, what is important? Well, uh, painting and drawing is, is uh, an activity on its own. And, uh, he was well aware of my paintings and wrote about them in a very complimentary way. So I think he appreciated that. Um, apropos of writing as well, I've uh, been an art writer for many years, but almost all of my writing appeared in the newspaper. So of course I'm writing for a general public and it must be free of art jargon. I mean, that just isn't helpful in trying to explain things. And uh, also, because the writing is very public, it, it appears every week, and people you know on the street uh, are, are reading it and responding to it, it's really no help writing negative things. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work out. The artists can't change what they're doing. All their friends are ready to stab you in the back. And it just makes you unhappy trying to write these negative reviews. I've written a few. It's, a, it's, not, it's not productive. So uh, partway into my career as the art writer, I stopped writing all negative reviews. If I was feeling negative about the subject, I should change subjects and find something I actually could support and encourage and use my platform in the newspaper to, to bring attention to something good. And I'm sure that Hughes noticed this as well, that here was a writer who was uh, straightforward in what he was saying and always accentuated the positive. Because I know this about Hughes, in his 93 years of living, 
he never said a negative thing about anybody. It was simply extraordinary. Uh, sometimes it, it was a, uh, maybe not a good tendency. Uh, he would end up uh, saying what he knew people wanted to hear rather than what probably his own opinions were. But he, wouldn't, he would never say a bad word about anybody. So I have a feeling that Hughes noticed these things. And uh, it may have been a subject of uh, either conversation or just common knowledge between he and Pat that I, I was a writer who they could trust. And uh, so when the task came to hand his life story and her life's work over to somebody, well, they gave it to me. Thanks so much to Robert for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about the shortlisted authors, as well as details about our upcoming events, like our storied series. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Claudia Cornwall, whose book, British Columbia in Flames, Stories from a Blazing Summer, is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.